Hi everyone, this is John and TJ. Welcome to our 10th ALN Math Talk episode for Season 2. Math Talk is where we answer your questions about online lessons, math learning, and the meaning of mathematics. We're going to have to veer away from our usual introduction here. Today we're going to be talking with author Don Dibley, author of a book that is very near and dear to us here at All Learners, Numeracy for All Learners. Unfortunately, when we interviewed her, uh, our equipment was not working as well as it might have. So we've got some of the interview, and we hope that you'll enjoy what we've been able to save. Thanks. In Chapter 4, you talk about functional math, but it's different than the way we've seen or heard functional math referred to, like from Lee Ping Ma, for example. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and how it impacted your book? Right. So, yes. And we're not talking about functions. We're talking about yeah. uh, functional mathematics. And this comes from conversations that I would have with teachers that I was working with and coaching, um, especially students who had more significant uh, learning difficulties who their, and their teachers would say, well, we just really need to work on functional mathematics. And to them, that generally meant using money and, and telling time um, mm. is what they, their big focus was. And what I came to realize and was trying to help them realize is that numeracy, early numeracy, you have to have that. That's the foundation for what they were calling functional mathematics, the mathematics that you need in, in everyday life. Um, I really like, and I have the, this is in the book about, uh, in Australia, to be numerate is to use mathematics effectively to meet the general demands of life at home, in paid work, and for participation in community and civic life. So that is things like knowing the sequence of numbers, knowing what the, those digits mean, what they represent, being able to count, determine quantities, all those things that we talk about in early numeracy, that's what I would like to reframe functional mathematics as. So that's the first part. Um, but then also, um, what are the skills that you need to actually deal with money? Um, coins, understanding coins, understanding that that dime is actually smaller than a penny, um, represents, is the same as 10 pennies, when you can't take it apart and see the 10 pennies in there. And so what you need to understand about tens and ones and about grouping and about unit coordination, understand what's going with money and time, when time isn't a, an object that you can hold on to, that you really, you know, uh, yeah, the students need to be able to, how do they understand time and how can they understand time and what do they understand about time? So we, we had a pause moment when, uh, well, uh, Glenn and I, when we saw the chapter, right? So I, I'm coming to the conclusion after this conversation that you're just a nicer person than me. Um, oh. <laughs> well, because we we kibbutz time and money. When we deal with special educators, what we see is a similar thing, like especially for kids with complex needs. That's all they want to do mm-hmm. in a very procedural, functional way. Yeah. So, So when we saw a chapter devoted to time and money, my first thought was, oh no, because everything had been so great. And then I loved what a broad and incorporated way you dealt with it. I thought it was, it was perfect. I do wonder though, 
Are you opening the door? Possibly. And that's what's so hard about writing a book. <laughs> First of all, you know, it's, it's like it's there forever, and, and you learn new things. Um, so, yeah, I may have, but I hope, I hope that I'm opening the door to people thinking about what is really needed, what's the early, what are the early numeracy needs if we're going to teach functional mathematics. Because eventually, I mean, I hope that by building these early numeracy needs that our students are all students, more students are going to be able to learn these functional, you know, to use money effectively, to be able to tell time for whatever that means for them. Um, here's another thing I've been thinking about that I wish I would have put in this chapter is the functional mathematics that students need during their school day. And here's a great example that I wish I would have put, put in this chapter is finding a page in a book. Um, I was, when I was a music therapist, I went um, to the music teacher in the building and I said, so I'm going to be working with these students in their classroom and a lot of them come to you, that's their mainstream opportunity is to go to general ed music, so we said at the time, and um, what are some things that I could be doing when I work with them that will help them in, in music class with you? And she said, you know, they can sing with everyone else, they can play they can dance with everyone else, they can play instruments with everyone else, but when I bring out the music book and they have to find a page in the music book, I am running around trying to help them and their friends are helping them, but they just, and so the idea is that if I open a book to page 52, but oh, actually I need to be on page 50, do I know which way to turn the pages? And do I know that two is just a few, you know, 50 is just, two back from 52? What if I had to go to page one? Would I turn those pages back one by one or would I be able to go, oh, I need to be way back at the beginning of the book? So just things like that, finding your room number, knowing your bus number, being able to find, does room 203 or 203 mean that there are 203 rooms in the building? No, what do those room numbers, you know, where are different ways that we use numbers? How much, um, how many crackers do you want for snacks? And if I, if you want five and I only gave you three, how many more crackers do you want? So ways to incorporate functional mathematics throughout the school day. Um, as I, as I was reading the chapter, the word that kept coming to my mind was coherence, mm -hmm. right? That to me, that's like the definition of coherence is when we take this context or content like time or like money and we apply it to other ideas within mathematics. And I think this is not just a, an issue for um, special educators um, who sometimes hyper-focus on those things, right? Mm -hmm. But also I think of kindergarten and first grade teachers. I mean, since Common Core came out, which of course is the basis for most, if not all, state standards, mm -hmm. um, so many teachers at that grade level would say, well, TJ, there's nothing about uh, money in, in mm -hmm. the standards. And I'm like, well, 
okay, maybe not explicitly, but you deal with ones and fives and tens and twenty, right? All these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect context mm-hmm. to think about those things. Think about it in the context of money. And if you look at the second grade standards and what they have to do with money, how they have to be able to operate and function with money, there's no way they're going to be able to get there by the end of second grade if you haven't done some things over the course of time through kindergarten mm-hmm. and first grade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also money's a good model, right? Yes. When when I was yes. when I was first doing intervention in New York City, um, it, you know I, I don't I'm not making a sweeping generalization, but the kids I worked with, they did not care about place value blocks. They made no connection to them. But we would decompose twenty five with coins. I I walked around with a tin can that was full of change, and that was the way they they went about uh, decomposition and and building numbers, and it worked really well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and even, so Pam Harris has, um, on her podcast, has talked, was talking about fractions and things about how time, a clock, an analog clock, and money can be great models for figuring out fractions. And, yeah, that was really helpful for me, too, as an adult learner. I did Pam's podcast, and I don't think it's actually been released yet. But um, I haven't heard you. Yeah. Yeah. When she, when she, when I was just giving my background, and I said I had math recovery, she was like, she perked up. She's like, oh my gosh, I want to know more. Yeah, she was actually a keynote speaker um, when we were in Austin, Texas, for our conference. So she's had a little, yeah, a little exposure. Yeah. So I'd love to chat a little bit about chapter six. That's all about kind of using the um, LFIN or the learning framework and number to write mm-hmm. in keys. And mm-hmm. maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with the LFIN, if you could give a quick kind of mm-hmm. synopsis of what that is, because it's kind of a foundational piece for math recovery. Right. So LFIN stands for learning framework in number. And it's basically a series of developmental progressions um, for the domains of early number. For example, number words and numerals, knowing the sequence of numbers forward and backward. Um, what are some progressions that we can help students um, work through as they're learning those? Knowing the names of the digits, um, their ability to determine quantities and how that evolves over time from needing to see the quantity in order to count it to being able to imagine a quantity even when it's not visible to you and how you can combine quantities to make larger quantities. For example, TJ, the student that you talked about that had to come from one all the time mm-hmm. versus discovering the ability that, oh, I don't need to count from one. I can just say this quantity and count on from there, being able to count on and come back. So the learning framework in number really outlines the progression of skills that students develop in acquiring these early numeracy. And then it also goes into multiplication, place value, and then now um, fraction knowledge and how we can build on what students know about whole number to develop their fraction knowledge. So that's the learning framework in number. Um, and it basically gives us a, um, a way to determine where students are on that learning framework in number and then what is the next step for them in that learning framework in number. So where are they now? And what's the next logical step for these students in their development? And I think that ties in so nicely with writing individual education plans 
where you need to know what is their present level of performance. There's a big long class for that present level of academic. Uh, I've been I've been retired too long in special ed. I don't remember that. But anyway, so what is their present level? What is their current knowledge that we want to build on? I think that's so important for us as math educators. And then what is their need? What's the next logical place for them to go? And then we pull in how am I going to get them there and how am I going to know when they get there? So what are some measurable goals and objectives that I can write that I will be able to see evidence that they're at this next place in their learning? So I just feel like the learning framework, we also have, we call it the teaching and learning cycle. Where are they now? Where do I want them to be? How will I know when they get there and how am I going to get them there? Um, I think also just ties in really well with writing individual education plans. Um, I'll tell you that in, in our just the district where I worked is rather large. It's the fourth largest one in Minnesota, which I know compared to across the country is not that big. But anyway, we which have is someone just south of Minneapolis, correct? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we have someone. We're large enough that we had a person who it was her job to make sure we were our our individual education plan programs were compliant with what the state wanted so that we could figure that out before the state came along and dinged us with anything. And she said um, she could tell by reading the individual education programs who had taken professional development from, from me and who hadn't taken it yet because she could see the shift in how the individual education programs were being written. Um, more developmental, more based on you know, she could set very clear about what the students were able to do, and the teachers knew what the next step was for students, and then just the way that they wrote those measurable um, goals and objectives. She could well, see the impact. People who are not special educators might not understand is that you get at the beginning of the year, you know, if you if you work with a certain mm -hmm. cohort of kids and then they kind mm -hmm. of move on after that year, you get a bunch of IEPs that someone else has written. Yeah. Uh, you know, my 15 to 25, whatever, depending on the year, how many IEPs. And I would just, I mean, some of them were just horrific, you know, like mm -hmm. the, I was like, I'm not going to work on that, but I had to because it's a legal right. document. And right. so I would just quickly like start rewriting them. And I also mm -hmm. didn't like, doing all my IEPs in a marathon in June. So I would right. kind of set them and mm -hmm. spread them out throughout the whole school year. So my meetings were spread out. And, mm -hmm. But I can't tell you how many times I had to do things not, you know, instructionally with a student because it was in their IEP and I had, didn't have time yet to kind of rewrite it. Right. And when you write an IEP, you're writing that as part of a team, which includes their families and, you know, their guardians. and. Sometimes the guardians will ask for certain things or, for, or will want certain things. And something that I used to ask was, first of all, when I write this goal or objective that you want, it has to be measurable. The results need to be measurable. How do you want me to measure that? How will that measurement look to you? And then also trying to explain, okay, so, so this is what you want. Here are some steps that I think will be helpful along the way. I'm not saying that I'm not going to do what you want. I'm saying that for this measurable goal and objective, here's something that I think will lead to that. I usually got people to agree, agree with that. I think it's also helpful um, when you are presenting your ideas for IEP goals and objectives to, to families that you 
are able to show them, and here's how I'm going to measure this. And so I like to have some, some data sheets available to just show them, here's how I'm going to measure how I know if your child is achieving this goal, and here's where I think this goal is going to lead. So if you have parents that say, and we're talking, going back to the discussion about functional mathematics, you know, families want their students to understand about time and money. That comes from, from the families too, and, and to be able to say, okay, I understand that. I want that for your child too. Here's what we're going to do that's going to lead to them being able to understand this. I think one thing is their, uh, probably their education and what they know. You know, as I said, the IEPs, the, the math goals and objectives in my district started looking differently after teachers had had this training in how students develop their understanding of mathematics that impacted how they wrote those. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's kind of what families want and it could be even from state to state, different, you know, despite there being a federal mandate and federal expectations, different states can also put in what they want too. If, they, if it's more, they can ask you to do more um, than what the federal government asks. I guess I'll build on what you said, John, to a document that was meant to be helpful, which has actually become rather onerous for teachers and for families. I mean, it was meant to be a helpful thing and to help, to help provide a good education for students and I don't know that it that it always meets that goal. I won't say that it never does, but it's become yeah. Another thing that keeps that keeps teachers away from teaching sometimes and from planning lessons because they're so busy yep. doing all the paperwork that's that's required. Well I love some of the forms you share in chapter um six that I think any teacher could use those, right? Not just special educators, it could be a, a classroom teacher who has maybe a small group or an individual student at maybe a, a workshop or a menu time where they're you know, doing a, just a small little intervention um, right. and could just keep track of the data to help make decisions about where you go next or stop or keep going. Right, because we all want to know if what we're doing is effective and it's great to have that, you know, in writing um, I think about interventionists, especially if you're in a multi-tiered system of support where you need to be showing progress or some kind of progress monitoring. These forms can be used for that. Not just for people who've had this math recovery training. I mean, I hope that we have set things up so that they could be usable by anyone. And that's something that we came up with, or a, I guess, a, I don't know, assembling block probably isn't the right word. Something we had to consider in the district where I worked when people would have this training and then would want to start writing individual education plans based on their understanding of the learning framework and number is you can't just pull words from the learning framework and number yes. you need to make it so that the next teacher who may not have had that training understands what you're doing and can implement that IEP because as you mentioned earlier TJ you're going to those students are going to move on to someone else you're going to get new students so what's the language that the common language that we share that everyone can understand how that IEP is written yeah one thing I want to appreciate about numeracy for all um, is the grain size so when people say well what's different about all learners than other math professional development because a lot of math professional development 
emphasizes inquiry and models and the same stuff that we do. But I think what's different about us is that we're involved in what happens between a teacher and a student at key moments, right? We're mm -hmm. very in the weeds on the details of this. And I haven't read a lot of books that are like that, but I thought yours was really great at that level. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, curiosity about students is, is key to what we're doing. And I think um, especially working with students who have different learning abilities, um, complex needs, Man, we are learning every day from the students we work with. Uh, you learn the most from the trickiest students, right? And then yeah. you have something else in your toolbox that you can use with other students that you encounter. So I um, loved it when teachers in my district would contact me and say, ah, oh, I have this student that I'm really struggling. Yes, please, let me know. I, I want to figure that out. Can I come and meet them? I want to I meet this student and I still, um, through math recovery now, people will reach out to me um, with with students that they have questions about, and so I really like to. I don't have the opportunity now to meet those students, but I have the opportunity to say, ask them this or try this, and and see what happens. I I love well, that too, and and I I do want to underscore highlight um, this humility that you pointed out because. Sometimes, so there's a lot of ways that people know things. I've talked about this before. And I appreciate the work that people in higher ed do to add to our understanding. Um, but sometimes there's a, well, when you see this, do this uh, mindset. And I find that particularly with our higher ed colleagues. And there, it lacks the humility of saying, you know what, I really don't know what's going on in this child's head. I can't say, oh, you, this is a work sample, just do this, mm -hmm. right? I, mm -hmm. I think that humility of saying, well, we gotta understand what's going on in the child's mind is mm -hmm. so important to being successful with them. Mm -hmm. Well, that also makes an argument for and people like you, Don. I'm so glad that you have kept your, your toe, if not your whole foot right, or leg, in education because when people in education retire and and go off and don't do anything any longer with education, mm -hmm. it's like we lose all this knowledge and this mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. um, and that's so much of what I heard you just talking about is, you know, you accumulate all these things and these mm -hmm. ideas and these experiences and, oh, well, well I tried this mm -hmm. with this kiddo and this didn't work, but this mm -hmm. did. So yeah. I can then draw on that when I experience something similar or a variation with another student. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, my husband says I'm failing at retirement. <laughs> yes, I know lots of people who do. Absolutely. <laughs> I think I'm that's glad, I'm glad you are. <laughs> so, Dawn, is there anything else about your book that you'd love to share that we haven't touched on or... Well, I think one thing I would like to point out is the eyewitness. And I noticed on your website, the All Learners Network website, that you have some assessments there. And one thing that um, I think, and this is actually one of the sessions that Pam heard me speak at, um, when you give your assessments, they're like interviews with a student, which I feel like that's the way. I don't like to call them assessments, I like to call them interviews, but when you're interviewing a, a student and everything's coming up, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. 
how can you take that task and what do you need to do to make it accessible to students? If it's a verbal task, do you need to write some things down? Do you need to bring in some manipulatives? And maybe you're not going to be able to say, oh yeah, they did this task the way it was presented here in this interview. But if all you knew was that they couldn't do anything in your interview, that doesn't give you anything to build on. Right. How can you take those tasks and micro adjust um, to getting to something that you can find out what can the student do? Because I need something to build on. You need a foundation. So I guess I would challenge uh, people who might want to look at your website and look at those assessments, which interviews, which look really great to me um, for figuring out where students are at. And I know you have them organized by grade level, but it, you know maybe you need to dip back into an earlier grade level to find out what are the tasks that a student can do. Or here's another thing: maybe you want to stick with the grade level that the student is at. How do I need to adjust this task, this content, so that it's accessible to the student? And I think that's so important when we think about students who are, you know, most students with learning differences are in classrooms with their typically developing peers, being taught by teachers who are teaching their typically typically developing peers. And how do we need to um, modify, accommodate the content so that it's accessible to everyone in the classroom? And we need to know where students are at in order to be able to do that effectively. You were so an all learners teacher and I'll, I'll say it's it's funny that you brought the uh, so we're talking about the high leverage assessments um, it's funny you brought that up because um, so the process of developing them was with a whole bunch of teachers who would use them and review them and it was like a three or four year process um, and during part of the process the assessments would say grade one grade two but mm -hmm. the feedback we got the year after that was up there was we went back to the original thing, which was HLA-1, HLA-2, because mm -hmm. then they just looked progressive because teachers yep. were pulling the earlier assessments all the time, and they didn't want the kids to be self-conscious mm -hmm. of doing an HLA-1 when they were in grade yes. two. Yeah. Yes, yes. I, I think that's so important. That's something, TJ, that, uh, that I always appreciated about Bridges is that if a student needed something from a different grade level, it doesn't have grade three splashed across the top. Mm -hmm. um, it's like we're giving students students what they need. And I know there's, oh, there's such a delicate balance between um, having access to grade level content and having the skills you need to access that grade level content, which sometimes might be something that should have been available to them grade levels earlier. And, you know, why wasn't it available? Was it because of their learning differences or was it because it just wasn't taught in a way that was accessible to that student at that time? Um, so that's, boy, that could be a whole nother discussion. It could. John, <laughs> we want to thank Don Dibley so much for spending so much time with us this morning. I think this is the longest Oh, no, so. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. No, we love that. Are you kidding? No, no, no. It's great. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, we hope that 
our thousands and thousands of listeners have enjoyed <laughs> our discussion about the book Numeracy for All, and we hope that we can uh, have you on again sometime. Well, thank you, TJ and John. This has been really fun. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Remember, you can find a recording of today's podcast at alllearnersnetwork.com and on Spotify or Anchor, search Ale and Math Talk along with free weekly online lessons, high leverage concepts, high leverage assessments, high leverage t-shirts, belt buckles, and coffee mugs. ALN Math Talk is produced by the All Learners Network, all rights reserved. Executive producers Sandy, Ms. Elementary Math Stanhope, and John, I was just thinking Tapper. TJ, the designer Jemison, is the co-host. Spiritual mathematical guidance has been provided by Robert Fly in the Water, Microbrew, stats-loving Laird, who reminds us that we'd probably be more successful if we just drew a freaking picture. Our theme music was written and performed by Sarah Blair. Join us next time for another ALN Math.